Welcome to the Indie Writer Podcast, where we talk all things writing and indie publishing. Today we are excited to be talking about writing horror short stories with David Boyles and Kyle Winkler. Kyle Winkler is the author of the cosmic horror novella, The Nothing That Is. He has published a range of stories in Conjunctions, The Rapture, Analima, Novel Noctul, and one forthcoming from Coffin Bell, among many other places. He's an assistant professor of English at Kent State University. He received a PhD in composition and rhetoric from the University of Pittsburgh and an MFA from Washington University in St. Louis. He lives in Northeast Ohio. David Allen Boyles has a collection of original horror short stories, The 13th Day of Christmas and Tales from the Hearse, where those he told were conducting tours for his ghost tour company, Dark Ride Tours in Asheville, North Carolina. Having taught literature for 30 years, Voyles is no stranger to weird tales and horror fiction in general. His lifelong obsession with Halloween ensured that it was just a matter of time before he published his own tales of terror. In addition to publishing his stories in various anthologies, he is also the creator of the horror podcast, Dark Corners with David Allen Voyles. Welcome, both of you. We're so excited to have you. So first, I'd love to just jump in. Could you each tell us a little bit about yourselves and what got you into writing horror short fiction? Uh, Kyle, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, thank you for having me, Jackie and Carrie, and nice to see you, David. It's kind of strange. I think I fell backwards into writing horror and weird fiction and speculative stuff. I the stories I wrote from the beginning many, many years ago just always had some sort of element. I used to describe it as like the stories were floating an inch off the ground. There was always something unreal or fabulous about them. And I never I never really thought twice about it, A, because it's just the kind of stuff I always like to watch and read. Growing up as a kid, becoming an adult, wanting to write fiction and writing it seriously and publishing it. And um, it wasn't until actually some some years ago I kind of looked backwards and went everything in my stories has something that's dark or scary or creepy or horrific body horror some sort of weird thing off the screen that's about to come on and uh and so I realized oh this is what I've been doing and then when I found the indie horror community um again sort of by accident I wasn't searching out these things I was like I'm home you know, I found people who have share a similar mindset and uh, and who like to read the same things and want to talk about it. And I was very happy to find myself there. So, I mean, again, it was just by absolute accident that I was, was doing these things. And I will uh, chalk it up to growing up in a very, very small town in Indiana, not having any resources and, you know, not having the Internet for most of my life because it just wasn't around. And it wasn't until, you know, getting online and start, sort of seeing what what these things were and, and giving it labels and having people tell you, oh, this is kind of what you're doing. You should publish here or do that. So That's really cool. I love hearing just people pulling patterns out of their book that maybe they didn't intentionally write and then finding, finding a home that they weren't necessarily looking for. Exactly. And how about you, David? What does that journey look like for you? Uh, yeah, well, it's kind of like what you read. Um, I've always been fascinated with uh, dark stuff. I just loved Halloween all my life. Um, and when I started teaching, and I teach high school, I think Kyle's obviously at Kent State. Uh, so it's a different experience altogether to be in high school, I think. Um, 
but I always looked for those dark stories when I could. And when I had Halloween, when Halloween came around during the school year, I would, uh, at least on the day or the closest day to Halloween, if it fell on the weekend, I would do something in the classroom and have some kind of fun activity to kind of, because I taught literature, it was easy to do. You could bring in something fun. And it was a day that it looked like every kid was involved. I don't know. I'm sure there were some that were probably still uh, tuned out to it. But one of my goals in teaching was, um, in teaching literature, was to get kids who hated to read to at least like it. You know, to find that there was some sort of, uh, there's something there after all. And so making that experience a, a, a pleasant one was my goal. And I may have scared some kids, I don't know, because we did some pretty dark stuff sometimes there. Even, not as dark as what I write, to be honest, but it was um, just really what my interest was. And so we'd have a fun time at Halloween. When I taught World Lit, I began to bring, um, we, uh, we didn't do the whole Dante's Inferno, but we would do an excerpt from it. And I would transform my room into a kind of a haunted house uh, with dark stuff and strobe lights and eerie sounds. And, and introduce the Inferno with the idea, that's the way the Inferno starts to me. When Dante and Virgil go to stand at the entrance to the Inferno, it's sound that they hear first. And uh, just talking about it as the ultimate haunted house was kind of a fun way to go. So a lot of kids remember that experience because they could walk by my room and tell something weird was going on and see the kids creeping in just like they were walking into a haunted house. So that led to when I, when I quit teaching, when I retired, my family's always had a fun Halloween party and my son's been involved and we were discussing uh, after a successful Halloween party where, where I'd made it like a, a theme of a ghost tour. I said, wouldn't it be cool if we really did a ghost tour and we had a hearse and you could drive people around in the hearse. And we were grilling on the deck at that time and my wife was coming in and out the door and she heard us, you know, and laughed. And then we went on with things and she came back out later and we were still talking about it and hours later we were still talking about it and looking online on our phones at where we could find you know old hearses and she said now nah, you're really scaring me uh and it actually happened and she and she was a wonderful sport about it we did that tour business for three years fortunately i think um we decided to end it it was becoming successful but we needed to make a, de a decision like whether we were going to continue the business or quit it and that would have meant expanding we decided we just didn't want to go for another loan and get another vehicle and try to expand it. And in retrospect, that was great because COVID was right around the corner and that would have really done us in. So uh, after quitting the ghost tour business, I still enjoyed telling ghost stories and I've always enjoyed literature and I liked writing. But when I was teaching and Kyle, I'm amazed that you can teach and write. I was never able to do it. I wanted to write all that time, but I just never had the energy to put into writing. So at this point being retired and then not doing the tour business, I wanted to tell some more ghost stories. So I put some together, started with the Christmas uh, theme stories because we did a Christmas horror tour. And uh, that was the first collection with the 13th day of Christmas. And that's a novella, but it's the 13th tale and a set of 13 stories. So that's kind of how I, I, uh, I fell forward into it, I guess I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> but see, here's the thing, I, I only teach I teach uh, two days or three days a week. You taught every day a week. Oh, that's true. And you taught probably more classes than me and more students than me. And you had a lot more. Um, not saying I don't do any work. I do do work, but I was I just saying I think high school teachers just have a lot of a lot of work. And so I can understand trying to 
get that stuff done. You're just, I don't, I, I know high school teachers and they, they are some of the most tireless, hardworking people I know. And, so. it, and it's really hard now. I'm retired looking back on it and thinking, boy, I really have respect for all teachers right now. These have been some especially hard times. So, and I, I think it's challenging. I've got friends who teach in college as well, and, and it's not easy there either. You've had to make quite a few adaptations, but uh, Kyle, I'm curious when you, I know that you also write not only your own horror, but you write about literature. And of course, I guess colleges are, are not only uh, encouraging, but expecting you to publish. Do they encourage you to publish fiction? Do you get that kind of a support or push from, from the university? At my school, and I should clarify, uh, I teach at Kent State University, but it's in the Kent State University system. There's a campus uh, from the main Kent one uh, in New Philadelphia, Ohio, called Tuscarawas. That's where I teach. So I teach a, a regional campus for people who are from southeast Ohio, wide range of uh, counties in Appalachia. Because I have an MFA, I think it's something that they're open to, but I don't think it's anything that necessarily is going to make or break my career in academe, which I'm kind of okay with because my job is to publish um, articles about composition and rhetoric. And if it happens to include literature, which it does, um, all the better. But I do, I do uh, share that stuff with people. I mean, not everybody digs or unfortunately, but uh, you know, when those things happen, I like to tell people about it because they might like it and I didn't write it to just stick it in the closet. So, um, but my students, on the other hand, they very much uh, like horror. I think horror is kind of on the rise again. I think we're seeing another second wave of uh, a rebirth of, of horror as there was say in the eighties and into the early nineties. Well, that's neat. And you teach writing, which I think is exciting. So uh, you may have multiple yeah. courses, but among those at least is teaching writing. Am I right? Yeah, I have. And you know, what's in, in the fiction writing classes that I teach, you know, most of my students write, they write horror or something that's fantastical with horror elements to it. So I think it's a real, I, I think it's something that people are really getting uh, into either it's what they're reading. I mean, that's, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a really popular book that's been out. I just saw a mass market paperback of it in the bookstore was uh, Lee Bardugo's The Ninth House which has kind of got some, it's fantastical, but it has horror elements to it, you know, blurred from Stephen King, can't get any higher than that, I guess, in that regard. Uh, I think it's, again, like I said, it's really on the rise. I saw a friend comment on Instagram yesterday that uh, something about, he's been seeing a lot of books that he thinks would fit into the old Dell Abyss line. Dell had published that popular list, very short list, but it had been a list of horror novels in the late 80s, early 90s, called Abyss, things like Kathy Koya's The Cipher, uh, books by, uh, I'm trying to think off the top, maybe Michael McDonald, uh, McDonald, and uh, people like that. And so I'm very happy uh, that that's happening because it seems that that's kind of what I'm into. I don't know if how much you, outside of, say, you know, ghost tales and things like that, if you were a real, were you a deep reader of horror? Deep is an interesting word. I, some I'd say wide, uh, and I read uh, just a lot of stuff. And I've and since I started writing, I've read a lot of bad stuff, 
uh, <laughs> which uh, part of it's because I'm cheap. And so, you know, you can get some good free or, or inexpensive things and subscribe to those and get horror. But I wanted to know what the horror market was. And it's like you say, there is an interest in horror, but it also, the other side of the coin to me is that it's so much easier to publish and self-publish that the market might be glutted. There's so much bad stuff out there. Now, there's plenty of good stuff, especially if you're not as cheap as I am and you're willing to pay for it and buy it. <laughs> but, but it's hard to break into as a writer. I mean, I'm 67 years old and started writing horror or trying to publish about two years ago. Uh, and there already people were publishing and those who had self-published early were successful. You know, they were, if you're early in the game, but I'm not early in the game and I, and it is really, really hard to do. What do you, what's your experience been like in uh, trying to get published or publishing? Well, I think the thing that was a quick reminder to me very early on, and I wasn't always trying to publish horror as horror. Again, I was probably publishing stories that had horrific elements or horror-like elements in them, but I wasn't actually trying to sell to, say, paying markets that bought horror, A, because I either didn't know they existed or because I just I didn't, it didn't dawn on me that that's what I'd be doing. I would say there's so much talent. <laughs> it's... It's sort of both discouraging and encouraging. It's both wonderful and it's uh, for, and I should even, I shouldn't even be saying this. It's probably only wonderful, but that just means that you have to work even harder, which is probably, it's a good thing. Of course you feel that uh, work harder to get into those things. And so my experience has been, you know, I think the last, just this year have been some of the most specific horror publications I had. The uh, Jackie, in the intro, you said that I had one f forthcoming. That when I wrote the intro for you, it was forthcoming, but now it's been published. Oh, sorry a about story. that. No, I, I, it's that we we set this up so many months ago. I just, you know, uh, it was true then. But it's been published. In the meantime, it's called Homebody, uh, and it's on uh, Coffin Bell, which is an online uh, dark literature journal. Uh, they publish all kinds of great dark stuff. And um, when I originally wrote that story, I was thinking of it as alternative history SF, okay? It's supposed to be taking place in a sort of alternative version of whatever, whatever year I started that story, which is probably four or five years ago. And that's not true, it was much longer than that, but it was an alternative version of what I was doing. And as I started writing it, and then as it started kind of coming along in subsequent drafts, it just got darker and darker and darker. And the body horror that was in it just kept being more prominent and prominent and prominent. But the thing was, is that there wasn't any one, the trope of horror, right? Like the first sentence being, you know, uh, David Voiles woke up and there was a chill in the air. And you're like, ooh, you know, that wasn't it. You know, I think the first line of that, that story is uh, something like, uh, it was northern Indiana and there was nothing to look forward to. That doesn't tell you anything. I mean, except that I don't like Northern Indiana where I lived for a long time or so, you know. So I think, you know, I try to find the best place for it, whether or not it's it's the most popular place or it's a place that pays a bunch of money. Of course, I try to publish in those nice places. I love uh, Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction and to get into there would be sort of like a big dream. Obviously, I've read it for a long time. I love the people who are published now, everything about it. It's a legacy publication and that would be really great. You know, but if I never get in, then I never get in. Um, but I'm always going to keep trying. Um, and uh, I'm it's, I'm glad that you are. You you should. You should keep going. I just think that's like, you know, 
And sometimes it's good to read cheap stuff because you know what not to do. <laughs> and you probably find all the hidden gems in there too. And I'm curious, since we're talking, you know, this episode is about short horror and will be our Halloween episode. So that, that'll be exciting. When you begin a piece, do you kind of already have an idea of how long it's going to end up or, or do you just kind of start writing and then it takes its own form? What does that process look like for both of you? Well, for me, I've written mostly short, uh, all short fiction, really, even the pieces that are um, book length or novellas. I still haven't written what you would typically call a novel. And I've, I've started with short stories um, primarily because I felt like I like short stories. First of all, I think it's a good uh, length. It's fun to do and it's fun to read because it's fun to have a completed piece. And what was it? Pose big definition about, you know, being able to be read in a single set, sitting, something like that. So that's kind of what I go for. But what a person's length of time for a sitting is, is really varied and probably much shorter. I'm sure it's much shorter than it was in Poe's day. <laughs> so our attention span being what it is. But I kind of um, just wrote stories like a change. What you said first, Jackie, was like, um, I just let it go. But I knew it was going to be a short story. And my short stories vary in length. But when I was encouraged to put them in a podcast form and, and read them that way and see if I could grow an audience that way, the podcast then dictated something else. And I felt like a 20, 25 minute time span was what I needed. So I had to kind of learn what that was. And I violate that sometimes myself, but I feel like I can do that. And what I'm doing now, um, I have three seasons of the podcast and two of them are really episodic. And so the episodes are like short stories and I shoot for about 20 or 25 minutes there. And like I say, every now and then there's a variation on the one right now that I'm doing when it, it'll finish, it will be finishing. Um, I think the same time this podcast airs the last episode may be the same day, but it's, uh, uh, it's longer than the other ones. In fact, it's about 20, it's about twice as long, but that was kind of what guided me then was to think of, and that was actually a very good thing for me. It helped when I had to start, fine-tuning things to make, you had to edit enough to, to realize, okay, this needs to be more precise. And I have a tendency to write too much. You know, it's the taking stuff out that really I need to do and sentences that are too long, stories that are too long. So that, that's been part of my process in determining length. And it seems like if you're, you're writing with the idea of a performance, then, then that I'm sure is going through your head the entire time you're writing it. And I've had the pleasure of actually seeing David read live and it is very much a performance. And so that's neat just to be able to think, okay, about your audience receiving that experience live as you're writing. Thanks. It's fun. And that comes from teaching. I think teaching is often um, like a performance. It shouldn't be that way. We're supposed to be moving much more Agreed. toward the, yeah, yeah, good. I, I, I just couldn't help it. It's kind of a ham on the stage. And uh, I didn't ever have a drama background, but as an English teacher in high school, they'll hand you all kinds of things to do, the yearbook and the and teaching. Oh, you're going to be the drama teacher now. I haven't had any drama background. That's okay. And we don't have a stage. We don't have a theater, but you're going to teach drama. Uh, okay. And we had fun. So we just, you know. Uh, just put on plays, you know, hey, kids, let's put on a play. But it, it was fun to do. And that kind of helped my storytelling. So like you say, it's kind of ingrained. And I think of it, it's very visual. Actually, to me, the stories look like movies. They're playing out that way when I'm writing, um, maybe more so than the audio 
aspect of telling a story. I kind of see them, but I think it, I think it is probably a combination of the two. I, I have to agree with David that that's you will often as a teacher, especially as a high school teacher, get handed more things. But I, I'm the faculty advisor of the English club. And I was asked, I was approached pre-COVID by students to direct a Shakespeare play. I teach Shakespeare on my campus. And so I was sort of looking forward to maybe doing that, but that I think got squished, oh, unfortunately. Yeah, that's too bad. Um, it, would be, it would be good, we're reading Macbeth around Halloween. So that's, I always try to put a sort of spooky play around there. So that would be good. Uh, Jackie asked about length. Like when I write a story, do I know how long it's going to be? No, <laughs> I think uh, is the short answer. You know, uh, the nothing that is the novella that I self-published was, I say this in the back in the acknowledgements, I was on a walk. I suddenly had this image in my head and of someone feeding another person under a sheet food in a really weird open room. And I thought, okay, well, I don't know what this is. So I started taking some notes on my phone and I thought this will just be a story. I thought that would be great. You know, I was, I'm always trying to create ideas for stories, lock them away, look up later and see, okay, what, which one's still uh, interesting me. And I'll try and build that out and see how far I get. And uh, it wasn't until I started actually building out, you know, seeing, I want this, I want this, I want this. I know I want this. Cause if, you know, what's going to come from this, you know, and uh, I, I realized very quickly, I was like, this is longer than say 12, 24 pages, 30 pages. This is going to be a little bit longer. And so then I tell myself, okay, well, uh, I'll just see how far it goes. I don't know if that's rare or not, but uh, when you when I'm trying to write a story, I think I have a problem now keeping things shorter rather than keeping things than letting things go long, unfortunately. And I wish I had the ability to write shorter things. I think I was it used to be the reverse when I started writing. I could only write stories and I didn't know how to write anything longer. And once I kind of got practiced in it, then I can only start seeing things getting longer. But here's the thing I want to say about it, specifically with horror short stories, is that, as David mentioned, you know, Poe's dictum of, of the, the story being something that can be a whole encapsulated moment in one sitting, right? I mean, Poe never really wrote a novel. I and mean, they always say that the, what was it, the, the narrative of Arthur Penn was supposed to be something like a novella. It's still like more like a novella, but like, that's probably for a reason, because I think he understood that you get that. There's something really great, or there's an analogy between a horror story, the effect of a horror story, and the effect of a joke. Hmm. There's a setup, and there's a punchline. And more, instead of a punchline, it's more like the sharp shock that you get from a horror story. There's meant to be something you take away that you're like, like an insuck of breath. Whereas the, the laugh from the joke is the reverse. You exhale it. But the horror story is what you, know, you suck in out of shock or horror or disgust or something. And so there's, there's, there are mere images of each other. And so I really appreciate it. And I want to work more towards writing those types. There's an author I really like who, uh, Eric Raglan, I don't know if you recognize that name. He's a horror writer and a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> he has this wonderful collection that's coming out, I think, next month. Um, and I was reading some of these stories, and they're only maybe, say, some of them are just five or six pages long. And, but the effect is very much like kind of getting... I don't want to be too violent, but like sort of getting slapped in the face by the end of it, you know, mm -hmm. which is what you want out of a horror story, I think, and some horror stories. And so the length is a really, really uh, important factor in that. And sometimes I feel like when I go too long, I've already I've broken some sort of unspoken contract with the reader, you know. So it's interesting that David feels that sort of 
length. Like I can't go past that. And if I do go past that, you risk uh, losing their attention. Because if someone comes in for a horror story, they're looking for the horror part, right? And uh, if it's uh, taking too long, they might say, see you later. Yeah, I think that's really true, really true. And, and yet at the, the flip side of that too is we have lost a little bit of something. I don't know if you've ever had a piece criticized because there's too much description and there's too much, you know, whatever. And I love to build atmosphere. That's a, a real important part of a story for me. And I feel like, well, I don't want to sacrifice that just for the sake of somebody who's been so spoiled by um, having to have gore and, and um, the equivalent in a haunted house is of uh, jump scares, you know. And I think, yeah, those are fine. It's okay to have some of that. But if I'm building my haunted house, I want people to appreciate and go, this looks awesome and it feels awesome and it sounds awesome rather than have the guy with the chainsaw just pop up in your face. Uh, but at the same time, I can do exactly what Kyle's talking. I can get too much of that. And you gotta, you gotta pay attention to what the reader wants. It's funny because that, that's pretty much the, the question I had next for you was oh. that a uh, horror relies so much on atmosphere and with short fiction, you don't have a ton of time for world building. And so how do you ensure your readers are immersed in your atmosphere, that you get kind of that eerie feeling uh, just from your first pages? Kyle, you want to take it? <laughs> uh, sure. Um, so I think the thing, you, it's right, you were saying that. There's a writer I really like who does mostly science fiction and he had done fantasy named M. John Harrison, Mike Harrison. And he had been talking about uh, being more interested in his later years writing stories that take a long time to build the normal world before he does something different that shows that it's not normal. And, and you know, and his pieces are, he's been getting shorter and shorter pieces as he goes along his career. I mean, some of this latest collection he had that came out a couple of years ago are like a paragraph. And it's amazing what you can do in a paragraph. And I think, you know, world building exists in horror stories. I think it's a, that's a weird, word. I have a, such a contentious relationship with that. But so like take that line I was just telling you about from uh, the story Homebody. The first line is, uh, it was northern Indiana and there was nothing to look forward to. So there's nothing necessarily horrific in that line, but there's nothing positive, which I think is a good first step. Because what it tells you is that already from the third person narrator's point of view, uh, there's nothing going on here. Like nothing happy is going to come out of this, at least from that first line. Uh, so that's, but that's a little abstract. The first, uh, I have a collection of, of I, I call weird fiction, but it's, they're mostly all uh, stuff that I've published over the last 12, 12 years, about 11 stories. It's coming out in November called O Pain, <laughs> O-H space pain. Um, sounds horrific. <laughs> and the first story in that collection, the first line is Emily bit her baby. I think... Now that tells, yes, the look on your face was, Carrie's like, I'd like to bite my baby. Uh, I hear I hear my children downstairs, so I sympathize. Uh, then you're immediately like, why is she biting her baby? What does that mean? Blah, blah. You know, that's much more direct. Whereas the other story sort of leaves it open. And at that story, the, the, this homebody takes you a while to find out what's strange about it, what's weird about it. You know, it's not to, it's a buildup, it's a climax. Whereas this one starts at the top goes down then comes back up again there's all these ways to do it and i feel like you know it's the first story it's the statement of a fact that something that's going on that's really horrible or you're having to do it uh building up layer by layer and i think it's tough in a short story because people are such good readers now they're so savvy they, they see things from a mile away things that would have worked 30 years ago will never get out of the gate now 
And so if you open up a story and say, you know, uh, the graveyard was shrouded in mist, you know, my instinct is to not read that story unless I know you're doing something parodic with it or you're going to satire that story. And I think because that type of M.R. James Poe tale just doesn't work these days unless you find a way to modernize it somehow. And um, that's just my opinion. I don't know. Um, David, how do you, I mean, you if you work in such short form, how do you do that? I mean, like, especially writing, you write specific, like, ghost tales, right? I mean, so it's like... Uh, it's a combination. I, they're not all ghost stories. That, that did get me into it because of doing the uh, tours. And so I was focused on those, but I really wanted something else. And uh, I'm thinking a lot as you're talking about it, about going, hmm... Uh, there's a lot of truth in that and, and, and about the modern reader. And yet, maybe it's my age, I don't know, but I like a lot of the other old atmosphere building, but that may be um, why it's so hard for me to publish. <laughs> I don't know, because <laughs> I have a lot of the other going on as well. Because for me, it is very much that visual experience of, since I can't literally take you in the hearse anymore to the graveyard, which is what we did. I mean, we literally took people to a graveyard and did a walkthrough and, and people love that experience, um, especially when you could do it at dark and the graveyards, it's hard to get into graveyards at, at night. But, you know, when we could do that the, around Halloween, it was perfect. And so I want to recreate that, you know, or uh, through writing and how to take people there. And to some degree, I think I've gotten positive feedback that that works well. But I think at the same time, exactly what you're talking about is very, very true in building the atmosphere. I think what helps me maybe in trying to make it more concise and precise is an activity that just happened accidentally. You know, I say this unequivocally, I loathe and despise Twitter. I can't stand Twitter. I tried it. I worked with it as hard as I could. But one really good thing came out of it. And that was um, writers were doing this activity called Very Short Story. And they were trying to write a story within the space of one tweet. What is that, 286 characters, whatever. And so I, I thought, well, that'd be fun. Let me see if I can do that. And I, of course, being horror, all of mine were horror. And I really liked the exercise. And I started doing it every day. Like, that'd be the first thing is my writing activity for the day was to do a, a horror, very short story. And I still like those. And some of those I've, I've used to expand a little bit. I've done a little bit of flash fix, fiction where I expanded them so they you know, could be longer than that. But it helped me to be precise in how do you create atmosphere within the space of a tweet? Or how do you get an idea? Or the, And it had to be the irony. It's usually a twist. There had to be something in there for me to, to make that kind of a, um, to work. But that activity has really been something that I've uh, felt like has helped in my longer story writing and then maybe if it's just the scenes or whatever but uh for one thing it gave me ideas that kind of quirky idea like you said you're watching for the um the nothing that is that you got this image of a just a really strange thing of this figure under a shroud eating something and then it's fun that that was an image that then created a story and then um and i've read that story i think it's really cool i really like that story i have a question about the title and i want to oh, get into that you. too but i i i've I thought it was um, it was well done. There's um, just a lot of fun stuff. Let me go ahead and just do that while it's on my mind because I'm old and I'll forget the <laughs> title. The title was so much fun because it also related, and I don't think this is any kind of a spoiler. It's just a fun little idea. But you mentioned about the the space between uh, songs on a record. It's kind of like the nothing 
and it's the nothing. And I love it. But I wondered, where did that come from? What was the little process by which that title came up? It's a line from, it's the last line from Wallace Stevens' The Snowman. Oh, Wallace Stevens. Okay. I, Wallace Stevens is one of my favorite poets. And uh, that, that poem is about, uh, well, it could be about whatever you want, but I think it's about, um, he, one of his eternal uh, themes is about imagination, the power of human imagination. And he's very much about, you know, uh, the nothing that's the nothing that's not and the nothing that is. And, you know, uh, at the end of that, he was talking about um, one must have the mind of winter as a line from there, uh, you know, to be a snowman. When And it's like he's it's so strange. You just think a snowman is such a childish thing, but he takes it. He makes it like a <laughs> metaphysical conceit. And anyway, at the at the end of that line, he, he does this doubling where he says, um, the nothing that isn't and the nothing that is. And I just remember thinking like, I've always remembered that line from reading it way long ago and I don't know how I came upon it again. Um, Cause I'd had horrible titles for that novella, horrible <laughs> titles for that novella. And I think I was reading some poetry and I came across and I was like, that's perfect. Then the tape thing came along later because there was a character in the story who listens to a lot of her takes place in 86. So she's listening to a Walkman and there's also, you know, mixed tapes and tapes. And so there was that space. And I always remembered listening to tapes. And I loved that part when a song would end and it'd be the hiss of the si silence. And then the next song would come on. And that was always sort of a nice, it was a very tense moment. And so that's what I, I liked that. I love that. Of course, of course, my mind went to vinyl, um, you know. Oh, yeah. Any of it. But, anything. But like it was that. but it was so it's such a neat, it was such a neat concept. And it resonated with me because there was another thing I was just looking at. Uh, I sometimes pull up these little very short stories and I stick them in my newsletter. So there's some little fun thing uh, that for the, whatever viewer or readers I have, they can look for the very short story in every newsletter. Oh, there's a news. And I haven't put this one in, but there's one that I was looking at recently about. And I don't remember exactly my wording, but it doesn't matter but it was the idea about some people say midnight's the scariest time some people say three in the morning but it's one in the morning when the figure walks collecting souls to capture between the seconds the i and I, i've said it very poorly but the idea that you could catch people and hold them prisoner between the seconds which to me when you had the nothing that is of course you know i went with the record and the sound quality that was so neat um uh, that, that resonated with me and you know i'm ashamed that i didn't recognize the line from wallace stevens i should have had that but uh <laughs> but no i go for something much more you know li not literal but you know i went for the fun no i love that. But, I, that but i think it's really cool thank you really cool well there's another book there's another book called the nothing that is and it's a book about zero which so when you type in the title it uh, always pops up and people are like oh is that what? no 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 that's not it no mm. <laughs> do you ever get the other way around where people accidentally buy your work because they think it's something else. If that's the case, I have no, I have no problem with that. That's happened that's to me good. a couple times. Uh oh. <laughs> There's a new book that has the same title as my anthology, or not anthology collection, that I published in 2015. So, interest in that, that collection has yeah. gone up a little bit oh, because the they're buying the wrong book. Yeah. I didn't search. I didn't search well enough when I did my first anthology, and it's the thirteenth day of Christmas. And I thought, you know, I should have searched. But it, my story is about these terrible things that happen in this little village um, where they're cut off from the whole world, and every day weird things happen, and it gets really. It's one of the darkest things, and maybe my favorite thing. 
but I when I when you Google it, I don't know now what comes up. Probably still not mine, but there's a guy who's written a very heartwarming, loving Christmas story about the third. And I thought, oh gosh, uh, so I should have done my homework on that. But I don't know. I still stick by my title. Mm -hmm. And maybe it comes up when they're searching for something else, and they they see yeah, it, and yeah. you sell it, and there you go. even there you if go. they don't mistake it, go. it might come up in searches and. Grab yeah, they'll attention. be very disappointed if they bought mine hoping for his. But I, again, like Kyle, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah they can always yeah. return it. If they don't return it, then I figure yeah. maybe they yeah. read it. It's a win. Exactly. There you yeah, go. It's a win. Well, we started a um, audience Q&A session for these podcasts. So I want to make sure we get to a couple of those questions. And then I want to give you both time to read for us. So we had two questions submitted by one of our listeners, Alex Morrissey. Um, his first one is, does horror story creation stem from the situation or the character for you? So where does that start? It sounds like sometimes just an image in your head, but how does it usually start for you? Um, for me, uh, that, well, so the, the nothing that is the novella started with an image, but I very quickly had to locate whose story is it. And I realized because uh, catering is in my background, my father worked in catering. Uh, he was a food service director. I knew that the character would be someone who worked in catering. So it very quickly became about a character. Who's that character? What do they want, et cetera? You know, you work from there. Um, I think it's it's a both and situation, not either or. You know, uh, I had a vision, uh, a vision. It sounds like I'm a mystic. I, I had an image <laughs> in my head for a story some months ago about um, a woman who was up a tree in a forest and there was someone at the bottom of the tree who was probably some sort of a professional, maybe even a forest ranger trying to coax her down. And she didn't believe him because she thought he was something inhuman or unhuman. And yeah. And, the, and for me, Reed, I was like, I wanted the character to not know either way if she was wrong. I wanted the reader to think she might be crazy or she might be, right and i don't want you to know either way right and so that i just saw that i saw the tree i saw her i saw him and then i was like well who's telling the story is it him or is it her or is it a third person narrator right and so then you have to decide who and if it is the third person who are they going to follow and so uh, and they kind of come hand in hand in that in that way because i don't think if you're if you're going to tell a story take the cask of amontillado for example by poe right the the most fantastic image about that is the is the walling in. Why am I? Which who's the one who gets walled in? Montresor or uh, Fortunato? Fortunato, yeah. But because of the irony that his name is Fortunato, that's right. Okay, good, good job, Poe. Uh, he only he can get away with that kind of stuff now. Uh, yeah, that's right. So Fortunato is is walled in and he's drunk. It's this love. It's, it's perfect. It's so wonderfully crafted, right? And you think that image is really great, but the characters are so well drawn there you know you get who these people are as you're walking deeper and further down into this wine cellar um and i i don't think that if i was to guess that poe was like i'll just i'll just want to get to this image no i think he reveled in the characterization and i think he had both i think he thought it'd be great to wall someone in which was like an obsession of his alive and then he also wanted to really luxuriate in this in the the deviousness of montresor and the sort of gullibility of Fortunato, right? And so I think it's it's a it's a both and it's not either or. We like to think in binaries like that because it makes it easier to break down the writing process. 
And if you need to do that to get into it, that's fine. But I'd also say by the time you're getting going, you realize that it's much messier and that's much scarier. And so it's probably why questions like that exist, which is fine if that's what you're going to, if you want to get into it, I think that's a good way to break it up. And if you're going to do that, I'd say go with characterization over uh, an image or a setting or something like that, because character will always lead you better. It, once you did that, I had to, I picked up a, but my the tales from the hearse the anthology so i could scan the titles <laughs> and look at them real mm -hmm. quickly and go well what was it for me and it's i think ironically for me it looks like it was primarily a situation i mean it, because like kyle says it was an image there was something kind of creepy but the best stories without a doubt are the ones where i and i wanted to do it with all of them but there are i'll tell you why but some of them don't do this but it's about characters have to evolve there has to be some character that you can either identify with or be horrified by, but you've got to have some depth with at least one main character in that story. And so it, it needs to be there. I, some of the stories and tales from the hearse came from a Halloween party. And I, I just wanted to, uh, again, it was doing like a ghost tour thing and people could walk around outside and inside our house. And there's a little scene because we, we like to put Halloween, you know, spooky scenes like you're in a haunted house and but i created some stories and i didn't have a podcast at that point but i found out on podbean you could you could read your story and put it on there and i had people on their phones pull up the story there's a little uh, icon so they could you know grab it and listen and go from outside in the house real cemetery scene a little spooky walk in the woods and then a downstairs and all kinds of things but they could do the stories. Well, I didn't really develop those stories. I needed something really quick. I just wanted them to have the experience of walking around. Those stories that I included in Tales from the Hearse, I expanded and I worked with a little, more, a little bit more and they're fun, but they're just a Halloween experience. They're not great stories. You know, uh, I think they would, they work well for, for its purpose, like sitting around a campfire, shining the light in your face kind of thing. And I think those are fun. I think there's a place for those kind of stories, but the best stories are the ones that were the character, they're character driven, even if that image might have been what kind of sparked it in the first place. And I think that goes back to what you were talking about with the market earlier, in that horror is so varied. There are so many different reader expectations out there. A reader picking up a horror novel may not know what to expect because there are so many different types of variations. <clears throat> Some people, you know, I'm a librarian and people who walk into the library who say, you know, I want to read a horror novel, they might be expecting Poe. They're not going to be expecting David Tremblay or Cadwell Turnbull. So if I put something up on staff picks and say it's horror, you just don't know if the person is going to be into that. That's funny that you say that because the, <clears throat> and I'm, I mean this legitimately, one of the, my favorite review of my book so far, the novella, uh, was from an Italian reader who gave it two stars and she wrote both in Italian and in English. And I don't know if they meant it this way, but it says they were, they just didn't, they bounced off it. They were like, I thought I was going to read a horror story, but it was a boring story. And I like the, the, the sound, the poetry of that, the sort of unfound poetry of it, that they, they wanted a horror story, but they got a boring story. Mm. Now it's funny because mo I'm, the overwhelming amount of people who read it, like that type of style of horror but your point carrie is like it's cosmic horror there are a lot of people who don't like that and if you don't know that going in and you just because you're going to lose it or but the problem with that is it's also not 
Lovecraftian cosmic horror because I don't really care about Lovecraft, right? So people might be turned off by that, but if they read and they find out it's kind of funny, why is is cosmic horror supposed to be funny? Well, I don't know. Like, you know, that's what I wanted to do. There's this whole sort of movement of like uh, quiet horror. I think a lot of people don't get into, they don't understand it because it's like, doesn't seem like there's anything going on, you know, Uh, or uh, splatterpunk, extreme horror. There's just, you know, all these different subgenres, and it's like, you can't, it's almost a misnomer to say that there's just horror, you know, mm-hmm. because it depend. It just depends. Although maybe that's all genres, you know. It's like science fiction has all these different subgenres of science fiction. Yeah, I, really... I think one of the when you were talking earlier about setting your story in 1986, mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of an interesting trend that I'm seeing now. Is that a lot of these stories are being set in the 80s and 90s when that was when the revolution of horror was these other subgenres. I think the readers have kind of sunk into those areas where they like, but this understanding of horror is still emerging, Mm -hmm. at least from what I'm seeing. I'm, I work in a suburban public library, so it's probably different in urban areas or different horror circles that, you know, if you've got a group of horror writers sitting around versus your average reader. Um, But I think in romance, at least, the romance readers are sophisticated enough to know that they want historical, they want Regency, they want, they want a certain steam level. But with horror, there's just so much of it emerging. I, I almost think that's a new permutation of horror, a type of horror where there's no way to contact anyone because you don't have a phone. <laughs> Yes. You know, like when retro. you were talking about vinyl, yeah, retro horror. Mm. That's I real. Just, when I, I when I post on Instagram, that's a hashtag I use. Nice. Right? Oh wow. Be- because the now there and there's a whole philosophical thing behind that that I think about where I'm like I'm doing damage to horror when I do that because it it dabbles in nostalgia, and I don't want to do that. That's not what that is. Although there are a lot of people who. Who do do that? I mean, some of the great horror writers of our time, like say, specifically Stephen Graham Jones, uses time periods. He uses tropes from '80s slashers movies. I mean, that's what his new book coming out is about. Yeah, my heart is a chainsaw. Exactly right, and so that I just cataloged it. There's a lot of ways to repurpose and redigest the past into the into the future through the present, which is what you're supposed to do, I think, as a writer, but. I, I specifically, you know, there are some people who commented on that. They were like, oh, it's just it, Winkler's just doing this like 80s thing because it's hip, because Stranger Things, because, you know, the new Fear Street movie, because of all these other the movies that, or things that had come out trying to capitalize on this nostalgia for the 80s and 90s. And I'm not going to lie about that. I mean, I'm, I was born in the early 80s. I'm an early millennial. As was I. I. The 80s is sort <laughs> of in my blood it's in my memories that's all i have really in my head when i think of my life is like a lot of stuff from the 80s and early 90s and that was a very important time so i want to do i I, maybe i'm trying to like i don't want to regurgitate it but i want to you know metabolize it somehow Mm -hmm. i think that's it but your point carrie about no way to contact is incredibly acute because that is uh that wasn't the primary reason why i said it there the reason why i said it was because I said my dad worked in catering and and that was when the peak of his job was at that time growing up. And I have, I wanted to capture that moment 
And so there was a very specific personal reason for that. But it does help that there's no phone. But there are phones in the 80s. So it was easy. To just, and people had phones all around. And probably why there's also a subgenre that takes place in the present where Skype, cell phones, computers are the things that are haunting you or the mm. things that are causing all these issues. Yeah, Ghoster. Um, Have you read Ghoster by Jason Arnop? No. Oh, it's so good. Okay, I have to add that to my it's list. It's not a short story, uh, but I got assigned it for book list and I didn't know it was horror. And it's about a haunted phone. It terrified me. Oh, that's good. Well, but I it's will say very, this. very good. The thing, the thing that what some I think many people liked about my book was that one of the things that's creepy is an answering machine. Mm. So I'm tr- that's the other thing. I just was trying to like make things that are normal, terrifying mm. in a short story, right? Climbing a tree, having a baby. Well, I mean, having a baby is kind of a nightmare, but like, you know, yeah. things like that. Daylight. I'm just trying to think of the most, a TV tray, which is what my computer's sitting on. Like, how do you make that terrifying? Mm. That would be a good exercise. Well, there you um, go. To go yeah. back to your point, Gary, about the uh, so many different subgenres of horror, one of the, and to bring it all back to the short story writing and uh, short fiction, the one good thing or one another good thing about writing short stories is that you can experiment and do different types. And one, I don't know that it was a deliberate goal, but it became a goal as I was putting stories together for Tales from the Hearse that I wanted to have different types of stories. I wanted to write in different styles and try that out. And I, I don't know if it was successful or not, but some are very modern and some are very dated and some are set. And I wanted to write a story that was kind of uh, the way Poe writes or the way that some of these old uh, horror writers did in a, in a style that was set in the 1800s and the narrator is talking in that kind of language, which is tricky because you can really turn a, re- a reader off. It's hard to read those stories. Students in high school found that to be challenging reading. You know, the really uh, the kids who were reading on higher levels could get Poe and they love Poe, but it was a real struggle for, you know, your average reader, to be honest with you, in, in high school. But I wanted to try that out. And that's a fun thing to do with short stories. And so in Tales from the Hearse, you can see, and I mentioned it in my introduction, you know, I wonder if anybody ever reads introductions, but I, know, I write them pretending that they do. And I kind of explained, this is where this story came and, I, and I'm trying this style out in this and I wanted a different voice here. So there are a lot of different voices in that. And it was fun to do as a writer, whereas with a novel, you're committing. You don't have that freedom and flexibility, you know, because you're committed and you're going to be taken for me, it would be at least a year or more to write this thing. Whereas a short story, you know, much more concise and you can experiment with it. So it gave me more freedom. So I love that about short stories. I would love both of you, since we have so many indie authors that listen to this podcast, we like to just ask if there have been any resources that have been really helpful to you as you've learned to write horror short fiction, they can either be horror resources or just books on the craft of writing short fiction. Do you have any favorite go-to resources that you that you come back to? I'll go first to say I really don't have much because then Kyle probably does and that'll be much more helpful. And I, I kind of just relied on what I had done teaching and I, I fell back there. I probably should do a lot more of that, but I, I really don't have those online sources and uh, um, I'm, I'm happy to hear about some. Well, and it doesn't have to be online if you like have a craft or, book that you or, like or, or anything yeah. like that. Um, we well, like to Stephen put a list King, in our podcast. Everybody, everybody mentions it, or it seems like a lot of people do, but Stephen King's on writing was actually really helpful at one point when I was mm-hmm. getting started. I thought it helped me to eliminate and to edit uh, a bit more. Plus, it was a fun read. It was a fun book to read about writing. And it may be kind of cliche to, to list that one, but that was, my, that was mine. 
I don't think so. I read it physically in the book form, but the first time I read it was an audiobook twice. Uh, so that's one of the few books I think I've read more than two times because mm-hmm. he reads it and I like when he reads things. And so that was wonderful. And the first time I heard it actually, Carrie, was when I worked at the library uh, in St. Louis. I was shelving things and I, I probably should, I was allowed to have my headphones in there because I was <laughs> behind the counter. Um, yeah, on writing and not just specifically for horror because it's, uh, he's talking about all stuff, but he, you know, either way, it's kind of a, a two for one there. I think, sorry, David, Twitter has been really helpful. Uh, but mostly as a it's been mostly helpful in a sense of um, when I first started writing I was surrounded by other people who wanted to do it you know uh, I was in when I was writing seriously in high school there were people my friends were kind and encouraging but they didn't care they didn't want to read it Uh, when I got to college and met other like that was good I started finding more people you started finding readers joining groups uh, things like that. And then I went and got an MFA. And in the MFA, that's all you do. You eat, drink, sleep, work, uh, uh, you know, fiction and books and poetry. And you just, it's, you just live it. it. It's an immersive experience and it can be really, really wonderful. I remember it being quite, I mean, it was a great time. But then after a while, you know, if depending, depending on what you do after all that stuff, you can be kind of isolated. And so Twitter was a great way for me very recently in the last few years to sort of meet more people online talk about writing every day. No, it's not in person, unfortunately, but at least that connection is there. And I've met some really nice friends, some really great writers, and you, they, we exchange work, we talk about stuff. I sort of, if you follow me on Twitter or if you've read anything, I, I, I mostly use it other than in main things to talk about writing, think through questions about writing. And sort of, it's nice to have a lot of people comment at once because you can kind of expand the conversation about it. And so there, there is that. That's not a, a wonderful answer, Jackie. Is Twitter being the answer? Like, what's a resource? But no, um, we just want uh, to know what helps you. That is, it's valuable, <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of our listeners relate. So it's all well, good. I would say one other thing I, I really like a lot is uh, the essays. Uh, almost any essay. There are collections of essays that uh, Ursula K. Le Guin wrote. Maybe not even specifically the ones that she wrote about uh, writing, which was called Steering the Craft, which is a great book. But she wrote a couple other books called Language of the Night, and um, forget the titles off the top of my head right now, but her her collections on literature and on writing and on story are amazing. And I think one of the things that really helps me, or I think will help writers think through this type of stuff is what what does it mean to, to turn something into a story? And it's more than just, you know, putting two people in a room and having one of them want something and the other one not want something, you know? Those are good things to think about, but you know she was such a master storyteller and she was such a great thinker and a great mind and a great person. Uh, her essays really helped me sort of broaden the idea of what it means to be a writer and uh, tell stories and things like that. So mm-hmm. I would recommend those if you can get your hands on them. Those are always great. Cool. And we'll include links for everything mentioned. So I want to give you both a chance to read for us. So if you could just read, you know, something that's maybe two or three pages, up to five at the most, I'd say. And then um, maybe just end with letting everyone know what you're up to next and where they can find you and how to keep up with, with the work you're doing. David, you can, why don't you go? Okay. Well, great. It's kind of based off of an idea when I heard about a, a legend from folklore from Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic, but you know, what used to be the Czechoslovakia uh, called the Bubek. Uh, so I thought I'd just read an excerpt from that. I'll read a little bit and then I'll make a cut and explain the cut and then pick up where the other stuff is. So 
Uh, Susanna had just finished milking the goats when she heard it again, a cry coming from beyond the pen, almost like a baby crying. She walked Pearl down off the stanchion where the goat had been contentedly eating grain while Susanna milked her and released her back into the pen where her kid was waiting. Susanna closed the barn door behind her after setting the pail of milk inside to discourage Smokey, the family's tabby, from getting into the fresh milk and walked slowly toward where she thought she had heard the cry. Movement behind the barn caught her eye. In the fading twilight, she saw a dark shape slip into the cornrows. Was that a person? Looked like it was wearing a robe. With her heart racing, she crept back into the barn where she could look out through the cracks between the boards into the cornfield where the shadowy figure had gone. Nothing. No movement and no sound. Idiot. You're just spooked because it's October and Halloween's not far away. Susanna sheepishly gathered the bucket of goat milk and poured it into sanitized jars, which she then placed in an old Westinghouse refrigerator whose motor hummed loudly and sputtered as if it might quit any second. She washed out the milk bucket in the large sink and set it upside down on a hitching post to drain. But I know I saw or I heard something. Okay, I'll cut. Uh, Susanna goes into the farmhouse, but she overhears. She has an experience with her stepfather, whom you quickly get enough interaction to know he's a sleazeball. He's a terrible guy. Uh, and here's an, overhears an argument that she's having with her, he's having with her mother and that her mother has just gone upstairs. Her grandmother is still sitting there. The two women had been preparing the meal that they were about to have. So Susanna has just stepped into the room where her mother's uh, snapping beans at a table. Is Lawson coming back for supper? She asked. Jarena took a deep breath and turned back to her vegetables. I, I'm not sure. We'll just go on as planned. And if he's back in time, her voice broke and she quickly left the kitchen. As Susanna and her grandmother listened to Jarena's footsteps ascending the wooden stairs, they looked at each other. Your mother and Lawson have been having some difficulties, she said, her Slavic accent still thick though she'd been in the United States for 50 years. It's hard on a couple when a woman loses a baby. Susanna nodded. She'd been very aware that her mother's health had suffered since the recent pregnancy. Her blood pressure had shot sky high and she'd developed gestational diabetes. Months after the miscarriage, she often didn't rise from her bed. Just recently, she had taken charge of the evening meals again, but the cheerful woman that Susanna remembered when her father was alive was still missing. I'd hoped that Mama was getting better. The old woman just shook her head as she snapped another bean. What did they fight about this time? Your mother said she heard the crying again. A baby. Susanna's eyes grew wide. She heard a baby crying? Where? She said she heard it just a little while ago, as the sun was setting. Her tone changed as she added, but Lawson doesn't want to hear her talk of this. He said it was probably just a bobcat or a screech owl, just more of her craziness about losing the baby. Susanna could tell that her grandmother was not pleased with Lawson's dismissal of Jarena's distress. But I heard something too. Hannah stopped snapping beans and looked intently at her granddaughter. The old woman's dark eyes were narrowed as she said, You heard this crying? Yes, I, I heard it coming from behind the barn, and I thought I saw something run into the cornrows. What did this something look like, Susanna? The look in her grandmother's eyes frightened Susanna. I didn't really get a good look. It probably wasn't anything. What did it look like? Hannah repeated. Just a dark shadow, like someone wearing a long coat, a blur, and... Then it was gone into the corn. If I even saw anything at all. Why are you so interested? It probably is just a fading sunlight playing a trick on my eyes. 
after you heard a sound like a baby crying? The old woman raised one eyebrow. Probably just an animal, maybe even a coyote. They make weird sounds sometimes. Hannah looked at her beans as she snapped them without comment. Clearly, she was not convinced. So you think there's a baby in our cornfield, Babika? The use of the Slavic endearment made the old woman look up and smile, but just as quickly her face grew serious again. Not a baby, no, but maybe a bubek. A what? A bubek, a horrible creature who comes to punish. It cries like a baby to lure you out into the darkness to your death. Ah, one of your old folk tales, Susanna said. There is much truth hidden in those folk tales. So what does this bubek look like, Susanna asked. She didn't believe her grandmother's stories, but she loved to hear the woman talk about their shared heritage. No one knows for sure, but some say it appears like an awful scarecrow made of old bones. Its face is a skull, and two flames burn in the eye sockets. The bones of its fingers are as sharp as knives. They say it wears a black coat where it hides the naughty children that it steals. Susanna's skin prickled at the mention of a coat, a long black coat that they say the bubek wove under a full moon from the souls of those it has killed. You just made up the part about the coat because of what I said, Susanna accused with a grin. I don't make up the stories, girl. I just tell them as they were told to me. But people did disappear from the village where I was born with no explanation, mostly people who deserved it. That story is the bubek set in Halloween in the farmland here in America, but with Czech background. Thank you, David. Can you let everyone know that's listening uh, how to keep up with your work and what you're working Absolutely. on next? Yeah, thanks. I do have a website. It's just my name, davidallenbowells.com. So I try to keep things current there. People can also subscribe to a newsletter and then you can find the link on the website where I'll send out something biweekly, you know, every two weeks. What I've tried to do rather, a lot of authors just have newsletters and it's just an ad for their work. And I think, well, who wants that? I'd like to have something interesting. So I've started interviewing other artists, not just um, writers, but different kinds of artists that do things a little bit on the dark side, usually. And that has been so rewarding. It's so neat. I meet the, I get to talk to the, the neatest people. And so you can get an interview and find out something about somebody else too at that point. So davidallenvoils.com and uh, also the Dark Corners podcast is on most podcast apps. Uh, you can find it on all the ones I'm aware of anyway. So uh, that's free and it's fun. And we've got the story Rates of the Appalachian, which I'm really, really excited about that story right now. So it's perfect. So here in October, you, you'll just be finishing up. There are 13 episodes. You could hear the whole thing, but you know, easily to catch in the Dark Corners and uh, davidallenbowles.com. Thanks. Thank you. And we'll link to that as well. All right, Kyle, you're up. Okay. So the uh, story I'm going to read from is from the collection that is going to come out in probably the first half of November called Oh Pain. And uh, it's 11 stories, some that are short, some that are much longer. The one I'm going to read from the very beginning, just the three and a half pages is unpublished. It's It'll be appearing for the first time in that collection. Um, it's called Geschmack which is a Yiddish word for tasty. Uh, so if something is geschmack, it's very, you know, it has a good flavor to its tasty. You sort of like it. You can revel in it a little bit. I won't explain what that means, but I will just go ahead and read. There is only one thing I'll tell you up front. There's a mention, one of the characters says something like the JCC, 
that's the name of a place in Pittsburgh called the Jewish Community Center, which is in, in the neighborhood called Squirrel Hill. I lived in Pittsburgh for a number of years to finish my PhD. And as soon as we moved to Ohio, uh, the Tree of Life shooting happened in Squirrel Hill. I don't know if you remember, this is a horrible shooting at a synagogue, uh, which I used to walk by all the time. And was part of the, it's a community anchor. I had a lot of uh, rage and grief over this. I couldn't be in Pittsburgh at the time. I felt like part of me was damaged somehow from that. I'm not even Jewish, but I felt sympathy with the Jewish community there. So I decided I, and just my personal predilection is I don't do anything with guns. I'm not crazy about guns. I understand our history with guns. I just, it's just me. No offense to anybody. So I wanted to write a story that was set place in Pittsburgh where I lived, tried to say something uplifting and positive and redemptive about the Jewish community and also anti-gun. So you're probably going to get a lot of that here. Okay. Leilani pushed Oster's gun down into the hole in her neck. Oster was her mother's boyfriend. She did it fast before he returned from the liquor store. The gun was not as heavy or as cold as she imagined. It was like a toy. She brought the 9mm with him every night for a year. Oster never threatened Leilani or her mother with it. He claimed to shoot pests, rats, raccoons. But just his carrying the 9 into the house was, was a statement, like, try and refute what I say or do while I carry this. So, the gun wasn't new to her. On the other hand, the bottomless hole in her neck was. It appeared weeks before, big as the wide end of a baseball bat. The hole's edge felt ragged like a puncture wound in a big tire. The hole didn't bleed, didn't hurt, didn't turn infected. Leilani had read a news story about how neutrinos constantly fire through everything in the galaxy, even human bodies. Maybe an angry clump of neutrinos blew a hole in her neck, or maybe the hole was from cell phone radiation. First she ignored it, then she worried it wouldn't heal, so she devised new fashion charades every day. In the past few days, she had tightened a scarf over the hole, a black cotton thing with screen-printed skulls. It was late July, and the scarf brought attention, but she had nothing else. A turtleneck would be freakish. Yet, she thought, a turtleneck would eventually have to happen. When Oster shambled back from the liquor store that night, he and Leilani's mother tied one on. They passed out in front of a documentary about ancient aliens. In the morning, over breakfast, Oster nudged her mother. Polly, maybe the girl took it. Leilani hates guns. She wouldn't have taken it. I'm in the room, folks, and I don't hate guns, Leilani said. She wasn't sure of that, but she wanted to be disagreeable. She futzed at the toaster longer than usual. Maybe she'd slip by without comment. She tried the bagel setting. She had no idea what the button did. Maybe it would shoot out a fierce bagel and blind her mother or knock Oster unconscious for exactly the amount of time it took to eat and run. Bagels were soft ammunition. Leilani poked under the scarf. The hole was still there. The gun was still gone. Well, maybe that's why she has the gun, Polly, because she don't hate him. She's curious. Oster stood like an Old West sheriff and poured coffee and leaned on the counter. You seen my shooter? Excuse me? Your gun? No. You sure? I am. You want to learn how to shoot it? You want to learn how to talk to women? Leilani, Polly said. There's no need for that. Oster smiled. He pretended to be offended. He gulped the coffee. He smelled of alcohol already, somehow. Kids were arriving at schools across the country, Leilani, Leilani thought. 
Adults were replying to banal emails, yet this guy found time to sip booze. Oster sauntered to the back window and leaned his forehead on the glass. He muttered noises about not being able to clear out those pests now, but Leilani knew he'd never shot the gun in the city, ever. What are you doing today? Polly asked her daughter. Stuff. What kind of stuff? Dumb stuff. Okay, well, if you're going to be stupid, be smart about it. Amen, Oster said. He went upstairs. Her mother's pragmatic philosophies weren't zen enough to be Cohen's, but not idiotic enough to ignore either. Leilani liked that. Polly carried an e-reader and a cereal bowl to the sink, never looking up. She leaned into Leilani and nuzzled her, right by the hole. You volunteering at the JCC today? Good girl. Have fun. She kissed Leilani's jawbone. Your hair smells good, she added, then also went upstairs. From nowhere above, her mother added, Let's ride the bus in together. Polly scrunched next to Leilani in the back back seats up against the engine. These seats always burned hot. They sat next to each other but didn't speak. Leilani's neck tickled as the bus neared the University of Pittsburgh. She reached under the scarf and felt something hard sticking out of the hole. It was small. She palmed it and held it near her chest. She peeked. It was a shiny, unspent copper and gold bullet. Smelled of rem oil, a Swedish combo of gas and WD-40. Um, this was no effing bueno. What is that? Her mother said. What? Nothing. A massive zip popped. God, Leilani, what do you expect wearing that thing all the time? Let your skin breathe. In response, Leilani patted the scarf closer to her neck and pulled the signal rope for the Carnegie Public Library. You're not getting off here, Polly said. Leilani had half an hour before her volunteer shift began. The closest private space Leilani could think of was the library's bathrooms. Uh, I have to take a crap, she said. A few passengers next to them looked up. At least it stopped her mother from asking more questions. She lifted the scarf in front of the bathroom mirror. Reflected back was the floating tip of the empty gun magazine, trying to escape. It was like an open bird beak sticking out, hungry for mush. She calmed herself. She reached in and pinched the magazine and pulled it out, as if playing that most nerve-wracking of all children's games, Operation. Now she had a bullet and an empty 9mm magazine in her hand in a public library. What the hell was she supposed to do with this junk? She didn't want to throw it in the trash. Would burying it be better? Worse? Something bigger was trying to push its way out. Maybe the grip this time. Leilani reached under the scarf again and was relieved. Just two bullets. She dug a deep grave in the trash can for those and caught the next bus into Squirrel Hill. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that that collection. What's that, David? I said that was great. Oh, thanks. I loved it. So the collection will be out in probably uh, the second week of November, I think. I don't have a date specifically for it. Trying to keep it around Halloween like a lot of other horror writers <laughs> for new books. If you liked The Nothing That Is, I'm sort of writing a sequelish piece to it now. It's going to be another novella that follows one of the characters in that book. That'll probably come out in March of next year. And um, my I have a website, uh, which is kylewinkler.net. It's mostly just keeping up with new publications. And sometimes I post links to other stuff on there. Um, I used to keep it like a blog, but Twitter pretty much does that job now. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, my handle is at Bleak Housing, and uh, if you want to hear me rant about both banal things and writing, uh, that's a good place to to do that. My Cosmic Horror novella, The Nothing That Is, is available on Amazon and Kindle Unlimited.
This was a wonderful episode and just really fun to talk to both of you. Well, happy Halloween. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Indie Writer Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will subscribe to hear our future episodes. We want to thank the Writing Block community for the continued support. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or at writingblock.com, no K. Remember to subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Thanks, everyone, and happy writing.